Good morning. If you would turn to Psalm 139 this morning. Can that Psalm 139? We'll be starting in verse 1. If you would read along with me, verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or... Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in my mother's or in the depths of the earth. Your eye. <coughs> Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malice intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray this last two verses, Lord, I pray that you search me, that you search us, Lord, that you search us individually, Lord, that you know our hearts, that you reveal our thoughts, our our intentions, our, our hearts to us, Lord. God, if there is any grievous way, in our souls, Lord, in our actions, in our, Lord, hearts, God, I pray that that is revealed to us, that we can turn from it and turn to you, Lord. God, I pray that you're with us this morning, Lord, as we go through the Psalm of David, Lord. God, that we reflect on what it means to be made in the image of God and how valuable human life truly is, Lord. God, I pray for our nation, Lord, as we continue 
to turn from you, Lord. Um, many, Lord, uh, have lost their lives because of abortion. God, I pray that our country would turn back to you, Lord, and see the unborn baby for what it is, Lord, a, a life made in the image of God, valuable, um, that we would see abortion for what it is, Lord, murder. God, I pray that you're with us this morning in your son's name. Amen. Today is a Sanctity of Life Sunday. Uh, for the last three years, I've done a, a sermon, a Sanctity of Life sermon, and the topic of abortion and abortion in our country and our culture. And I've preached pretty much the same sermon for three years, and I have no problem with preaching that same sermon over and over and over again. Uh, the goal of that sermon really is twofold, to explain the ideologies that really drives the abortion movement in our secular society and, and then give some logical and especially biblical arguments for why abortion is murder. It's always a, a very heavy Sunday, of course, a very heavy sermon, because to be honest, it's a very heavy topic. Listen, uh, 21% in our culture today, and this is a statistic for a few years ago, so uh, it could have climbed, um, but 21% of all pregnancies in the U.S. end in abortion. That means over one-fifth of all pregnancies end in abortion. Over 60 million lives have been killed since 1973, since Roe versus Wade. And once you think about that, 60 million, that's a whole generation just missing from our country. That's bigger than most nations that we have wiped out as a nation ourselves. You know, with all these statistics as we go through um, Sanctity of Life Sunday and talk about abortion, and the one that always gets me, and I think this is the craziest one that, that I reflect on every year as we come to this Sunday and address this topic is that only 48% of self-identified evangelicals, so not just people that claim to be Christian, not Catholics, but evangelicals, strongly agree with the following statement. Abortion is a sin, meaning 52% disagree with that statement. We're not even saying abortion is murder. Abortion is a sin. 52% of evangelicals disagree with that statement at some level. The evangelical church should be ashamed of that statistic. The least we can do as a church is to call abortion what it truly is. And of course, that is murder. The Bible is extremely clear on this. They can show you verse after verse after verse where scripture just assumes that the unborn baby is a human person made in the image of God. Let me just give you a couple examples. Jeremiah 1, 5. Behold, I formed you in the womb. I knew you. Psalm 22, verse 10. On you, uh, or, on you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Judges 13, 7, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. That's just assume the full span of human life there, starting in the womb to the day of his death. 
Isaiah 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. And I can keep going on verses. Life starts in the womb. It starts at conception. Therefore, we as Christians need to call abortion what it truly is. And let me be very clear on that. Abortion is murder. It's the killing of an innocent human made in the image of God. It's murder. Again, very heavy topic. And for the last three years, I've preached the same topical sermon over and over and over again. This year, I thought I'd do something a little different. And if you would, the psalm I just read, if you would look at verse 13 and 14, it says this, verse 13, very familiar verses. In fact, I'm sure most of you have these verses, or a lot of you have these verses memorized. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Probably the two most quoted verses in Scripture when it comes to the pro-life movement within the church. In fact, Psalm 139, what I just read this morning, is one of the most read, well-known, and beloved psalms in all of the Psalter. So I thought instead of doing this topical sermon that I normally do on abortion, I would just go through the psalm this morning and preach an expositional sermon on this psalm, partly because we've done so many topical sermons recently, and I would like to just exposit a portion of scripture this morning. And so we're going to do that. Secondarily, it's actually a very encouraging psalm, and after having such a heavy sermon last week, I really wanted to be more encouraging this week, um, even tackling such a difficult topic as abortion. So if you would, let's look through Psalm 139. Again, one of the most beloved psalms. But for how beloved it is, I really believe this psalm is, is misunderstood often and even misinterpreted. Let me just kind of explain what I mean by this. There are many different types of psalms in the book of Psalms. Uh, for example, there's praise psalms, there's thanksgiving psalms, there's celebration psalms, there's worship psalms, there's lament psalms, there's wisdom psalms, and so on. There's a category of different psalms, and many people and uh, commentators really see Psalm 139 as a praise psalm. Praising God for how big, awesome he is. I mean, just listen to some of these famous lines. Verse 2 says this, You know, when I sit down and when I rise, verse 7 says this, another famous line, Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And once again, verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. But look at verse 19. And as I read through the psalm this morning, this might have kind of caught you off guard. Verse 19 says this. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. 
They speak against you with malice intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred, and I count them my enemies. You know, when you read through the psalm, it's, it's almost out of nowhere that we come to verse 19. In fact, it doesn't even seem like it fits the psalm when you read through it. It's this cry from David's own heart to destroy the wicked. And because of these four verses, verses 19 through 22, many theologians don't think this is a praise psalm. In fact, many theologians actually think this beloved psalm is a lament psalm. What's a lament psalm? It's a psalm when an individual or a group cries out to God in distress. I really believe that that understanding that this is a psalm coming from David's heart, crying out to God in distress, is key to understanding this psalm. It gives you the context of what's going on. David is at some kind of struggle in his life. We don't know exactly the circumstances surrounding this psalm, but we know two things for sure. David's the author, and second... Right? David is crying out to the Lord in distress. And we see this again in verse 19. Look what it says. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. Men of blood, depart from me. That phrase, men of blood, tells us that, that that's death. Meaning, David's life is on the line. Maybe friends and, and people that, that are, have warriored with him or family have been killed because of these men of blood. Either way, he's crying out to God that they would depart. In other words, David is facing some kind of evil, pure evil. He's crying out to God for justice, and he's in distress. Now, there's a lot more I could say about those four verses, but the point I want to get across this morning is that David's life is in danger. The circumstances that are going on when he writes his psalm is, are not good. <laughs> They're difficult. He's facing evil. But here's what makes this psalm amazing. In this distress that David finds himself in, David finds comfort in three things. As we go through the psalm, you'll see this. God's sovereignty, that God's in control of everything, even the little details. God's wisdom and knowledge in God's presence. In fact, this is, this is amazing because it seems like, as you go through the first 18 verses of the Psalms, it seems like that David completely forgets what's going on around him. He's walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and he is not fearful. <laughs> in fact, he's just praising God, and he's so enamored by God that he forgets that there's men outside trying to kill him. I really think it's key in understanding this psalm. There is no hint of distress in the first 18 verses. It's like David is, is, is just lost in his thoughts about God. So much so, again, that the threats just fade away, that the distress, the circumstances of life just fade away. So there's three parts of the psalm that I'm going to cover this morning. And really... There's a fourth part where David cries.
cries out to God in distress. But I want to cover the first three parts of the psalm, which is God is omniscient and he's all-knowing. God, David's reflecting and thinking about these things, that God's omniscient, he's all-knowing. God is omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere. And finally, God is omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. So let's start with God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows everything, meaning he knows us better than we know ourselves. Again, look at verse 1. It says this, O Lord... You have searched me and known me. Again, there's two things I want to point out here. First, there's, there's an underlining assumption in the psalm that God is good. That God is good. In fact, at the end of the psalm, David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Right? King David is asking God to search him because he knows that God is good. He can trust God with his most intimate and, and even embarrassing thoughts. The second thing I want to point out is that the psalm is intensely personal. He says, searched me and known me. Derek Kinder writes, any small thoughts that we may have, may have of God are completely transcended by the psalm. Yet... For all its height and depth, it remains intensely personal from first to last. In fact, because of the personal nature of this psalm, it's become one of my favorite psalms as a pastor to use at funerals. God intimately involved in our lives and to the smallest details, even when it feels like he's distant, he's there. Even in our deaths, right, our lives are in God's hands. Look at verse 2. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. David is saying, God, you know me. You know me personally. You know my heart. You discern my thoughts from afar. Verse 3, you search out my paths and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. It's amazing. He's saying, before I even speak, before I even say something, you know the words that are about to come out of my mouth. Because you know me that well. In other words, you know me better than I know myself. And this is true. Warts and all, right? Good and bad. Ugly thoughts and good thoughts. Verse 5, you hit me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. This is a, a sign of protection that, again, David's in distress and he's just trusting God here saying, you protect me, you're, you're here with me. Right? David is celebrating this. Again, even if he doesn't understand why or what exactly is going on, he, he is celebrating this to the point, again, it's clear in the psalm by the end that David is in a hard trial, a hard season of life, right? even his own life in danger, and he still trusts God. He says in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high, I cannot attain it. The same thing Job said, in fact, he might have been reflecting on the story of Job and thinking about what was happening to Job. 
I'm quoting Job in this portion of Scripture. Job said exactly the same thing in Job 42, verse 3. I have uttered what I do not understand, things too wonderful for me I did not know. In fact, think of the story of Job for a second. Job loses his fortune. Not only that, he loses his whole family in one day. I don't know if you reflect on that. I mean, think about that. He's grieving. He's critically ill on top of all of that, too, to the point where he's unrecognizable. And he wants to know why. Why would God allow this? Why would God let this happen? And you know what's interesting in the the book of Job, and I've said this a number of times, but it gets me. Job never gets the answer to that question, why? Right? You get to the end of the story of Job, and God shows Job his glory, and and Job just says, that's enough. (laughs) That's all I need. I've spoke too soon, in fact. I should have just trusted you. Here's the exact words of Job, and this is after seeing God's glory, the goodness of God, the holiness of God, the the greatness and power of God, the love of God. This is what happens. This is what Job says in Job 42, verse 1. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. What's that? You're all powerful. You're all powerful. You think about that, what he's gone through in his life at that point. And he's saying, you could have stopped any of it if you wanted to, God. I know you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be faulted. What's that mean? You're sovereign. No one can stop you from doing what you want to do. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? This is a question that God asked Job when he first, first approaches Job, and this is Job's answer. Therefore, this is what Job says, I have uttered what I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Job is saying, I, I don't know why all this has happened. I don't know why, but you do, God. These are things that are too wonderful for me to understand. God, I just trust you. You know why. King David is saying the same exact thing. Even though this trial that he's going through is hard. I'm sure scary, stressful. I'm sure he's grieving. He doesn't know why. But he says in this psalm, God knows. You know what, that's good enough for me, you know. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. God, I just trust you, you know. Which leads to the next part. This hard time, this trial, this struggle that David is going through. He knows he's not alone. Because God is with him. Because God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Look at verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is nowhere. (laughs) You can't escape God's presence. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. Verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is the grave, you are there. God is everywhere. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. To King David, 
God being everywhere is a good thing. Again, God is good. I mean, think about it. In, in David's distress and his grief and his sorrow, in his anxiety and his... The fact that God is there brings comfort. It brings comfort to him. Look at verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the, and the light about me be night. If I'm in darkness, in other words, if I feel unseen because darkness surrounds me. Right? This is a metaphor because sometimes it feels like God is distant. Especially in hard trials that he isn't there. In distress and trouble in our darkest times, it feels like he can't see us. But look what it says in verse 12. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. In other words, darkness is as light to God, and God is there in our darkest times. He's everywhere, and he makes our darkness into light. He turns evil, trouble, distress into good. That's what Romans 8, 28 tells us. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. We don't always get the answer to how. Again, Job, for all that he went through, he never knew why until after his death. And God revealed all these things that were happening behind the scene in Job's life. This conversation that God had with Satan. Job didn't know that. We do. Because God's revealed it to us. This book that has comforted millions and millions of people. Job had no idea. We don't know how God turns evil, trouble, and distress into good. But we're promised that he does. But listen, Romans eight twenty eight that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, that can only happen if God is completely all-knowing, if God is everywhere, if God is good, and if God is all-powerful, completely sovereign, in control of everything, which leads us to our third point this morning. God is omnipotent, meaning... He's all-powerful. Look at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. You know what's funny is that this verse is super popular, these two verses. and um, People use them all the time to to build someone's self-esteem. Like, you're wonderfully and fearfully made. That's not the purpose of these two verses. Who is being esteemed in these two verses? Wonderful are your works. Let's take a moment and think about how amazing the human body is. The complexity of the eye, or this gets me all the time, the complexity of just the cell. DNA strands in every single cell, programmed information, more complex than the phones that are in your pockets. And we're talking about a cell, microscopic. (laughs) There's 37 trillion cells in the human body. 
I mean, just think about this, and this gets me. Your body heals itself. Have you ever thought about that? A few years ago, I think it was a year or two ago, I, I broke my, or fractured a bone in my body. I was riding my bike, and I fell. And my first thought was, I hope I didn't hurt my bike, because my bike doesn't heal itself. <laughs> right? But my arm will heal itself. That's an amazing thought when you think about it. And you ask the question, did you cause you? Did you create you? Did you make yourself? Of course not. Again, I've said this a number of times, we don't even make our hearts beat. Every beat is a gift from God. Even sleeping at night, we're completely unaware of what's going on, and our body takes care of itself until we wake up in the morning. God gets all the glory for that, not us. The human body proclaims the glory of God. The human body proclaims the power of God. And here's the amazing thing. For how awesome God is, he knows you. He made you personally in his image. Verse 15 says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Now, the context here, verse 13, is the womb, right? Verse 15, it says, being made in secret. When is, when is it that a person's being made in secret within the womb? Right, what is this? This is before the mom knows she's pregnant. This means there's intimacy with God. This is what David is saying. There's intimacy with God before there's intimacy with mom. She doesn't even know she's pregnant. She has no idea that that little baby exists, that God does. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. What's that? Unformed substance. Unformed body. In the womb, verse 13, before the mom knows she's pregnant, verse 15, when, when the body is unformed, when is this? This is when the baby's an embryo. Even then, God knows that child. Even then, God loves that child. This is why the psalm is used so often by the pro-life movement, because God intimately knows every child in the womb. Again, we could show this verse after verse after verse in Scripture. All made in the image of God, all loved by God, it's why abortion is such a horrific act. It's murder. It's the intentional killing of an innocent human being made in the image of God. Abortion is murder, period. But I want you to think about it. Who, who's this psalm about? Who's the baby in Psalm 139? Who's the embryo being talked about in this psalm? King David. The psalm 
was about God's relationship with David. Well, who's David? Well, he's a man when he wrote this psalm, not a baby. He was a sinner. In fact, he was a horrible sinner. (laughs) A man that had an affair with another man's wife, then had that man killed, a faithful man to him, he had him killed, he, he murdered him just so he could cover up his sin. Just so he could cover up the affair he had with that man's wife. So he wouldn't look bad. And because of this, because of David's sins, think about this. A baby made in the image of God right after birth died. You know the story. Because of David's choices, that baby died. Yet, God loved David anyways. In fact, let me just be clear on this. God loved Bathsheba, the woman who David had an affair with. God loved Uriah, the husband that was killed, that was murdered by David. God loved that baby that died because of David's sins. And God has a heart for every single person involved in an unplanned pregnancy. Even if that pregnancy was conceived in sin. Because the father, the mother, and the child, all three are made in the image of God. The psalm is not just about an unborn baby. This psalm is about a horrible sinner. The baby being knitted together in the mother's womb is David, a sinner. David himself even says in Psalms 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. Born with a sin nature from conception on. David was a sinner, a sinner Saved by grace. So let me say this. If you've been involved in an unplanned pregnancy outside of marriage, or even worse, if you've been involved in an abortion, and you have put your faith in God, you've asked for forgiveness, you are forgiven. Just like David God loves you. As a church, we should have a heart like God's. One that shows love toward every single person involved in a pregnancy. Not just the baby, the father, the mother, and the child. Doesn't mean we don't speak truth. I'm going to be clear on this. Sex outside of marriage is sin. Abortion is murder. I can't make that any more clear than than just saying that. We should speak truth. I mean, think about it. God sent Nathan the prophet to David. Why? To speak truth. You know the story. Nathan tells this story to David. 
gets David all riled up, and King David's ready to go kill this man that did this horrible act. And then Nathan very boldly looks at King David and says, you're the man. But after Nathan says this, what's he do? Second Samuel 12, 13 says this. Then David said to Nathan, the prophet, I have sinned against the Lord. <clears throat> Listen to this. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. David, you are forgiven. You're forgiven. You know, I've just done the Sanctity of Life sermon enough times now to know that there are a number of you in this room right now that have been involved in an abortion. When I first preached this sermon three or four years ago, I didn't know anyone. But a number of you have come up to me and have told me. I know many of you feel the weight of that. As your pastor, I just want to tell you this. If you have trusted in Jesus, if you have asked for forgiveness, you are forgiven. And you know what? You're in good company. King David, a sinner saved by grace. Look at verse 16 again. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. In other words, God knew every single day of David's life when he was in the womb, the good and the bad, and he still loved them. From day one, from conception, God loved them. And the psalm is just intensely personal. God knew David. God was with David. God was in control of David's life. The, day, the days that were formed for me, and, and God loved David. And because of this, David praises God. Verse 17, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. In other words, David is saying it's like a dream. This amazing God knows me. He loves me. Right? He cares about me. He has forgiven me. But unlike a dream, verse 18, I awake and I am still with you. It's real. It's amazing. So let me end with this. Last week, we had a heavy sermon on homosexuality, a sermon on biblical sexuality. This week, we're talking about abortion. It just happened to be that these weeks came back to back. The law got passed in Canada the week before last, and that's why we preached on the sermon last week, and this has been planned for for me to preach this sermon for months now. We'll be back in Exodus. We can't chase all the different topics that are going on around our culture. Otherwise, every single week would be a topical sermon because there's too many of them. God's in control. He knows what's going on. We can trust him, and we can go verse by verse through Exodus. (laughs) 
for how ugly both these sins are, homosexuality and the act of abortion, listen, grace is offered to anyone who repents, who turns to God, who trusts in his son and asks for forgiveness. We are all sinners saved by grace. just like David just like the prodigal son that's the story of Christianity we rebelled against God we were convicted we've heard the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ we turn from our sins and turn to him we trust in him who died on the cross to pay the penalty of sin We know that he was raised on the third day, meaning he is alive and well today. And we follow him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Every single Christian story. As the culture around us starts to attack us because we hold on to the truth and boldly proclaim it, we need to remember that, that that's our story. And anyone who turns from their sins and turns to Christ. That can be their story too. The passage I went over last week, and such were some of you. (laughs) It's a reminder to us that we were in the same boat as every other non-believer. We need to have compassion and gentleness and grace and the boldness of Nathan the prophet to stand up and speak truth. Heavenly Father, Lord, that's my prayer for for me and for our church, Lord. That we would be just as bold as Nathan the prophet, Isaiah, Ezekiel, these men, Lord, that, that we're not afraid to go and speak truth. Or at least in their fear, Lord, they, they put it aside and trusted you, Lord. God, I pray that we would have that boldness, but at the same time, have a gentleness and compassion, Lord, knowing that the world we live in is a lost world. That just like us, Lord, sinners saved by grace, just like David, there is no one that has earned their salvation. There's no one that lived a righteous life besides your son, Lord. God, I pray that humbles us, Lord that we would be bold, but that we would be loving and compassionate at the same time, Lord. Help us, help me, Lord, not to be bitter as the culture continues to go away from you, Lord. Help us to have a compassionate heart, Lord. Help us to trust you like David trusted you, Lord. God, I thank you. In your son's name, amen.